Amen. Good morning. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. And believe it or not, the spring garden season will soon be upon us. Do you realize that? You may not believe it because of the weather outside in January, but we are approaching the end of this month, and the growing season in this region um, really begins kind of at the end of February, the beginning of March. And so good farmers, good gardeners, if you're not a farmer, you're thinking now here at the end of January about the February and March preparations for those early cool weather crops. We are at our house. Um, depending on the winter forecast, ground can be prepared in late February and early March for some crops in this region. We do that here. So it's coming quickly. Um, of course, the peak growing season will begin in April and May, right? Uh, region by May is when the peak growing season begins. But a good gardener or farmer knows that to harvest cool weather crops like lettuce or kale or, or even peas, my grandmother put her peas in the ground February 15th. Okay, so you got to get things ready. You got to be begin your preparations. Begin thinking about that. The efforts of Jesus in preparing the citizens of his kingdom that we've seen here in Matthew's gospel are much like the efforts of a good gardener or a good farmer um, preparing for that crop. I mean, thoughtful preparation yields thoughtful production. A, A smart gardener or a smart farmer will intentionally prepare the ground and plant the seeds. He or, I will say she even, does not passively wait for the seeds themselves to ask to be planted, nor do the plants volunteer to produce vegetables or fruit on their own, do they? But all this labor is in vain if the gardener is not confident of a productive harvest. I want you to ponder that weight. You can go through the motions of preparing your garden, but if there is no confidence that there will be something coming from it, everything you're doing is in vain. I mean, the interaction between Jesus and the fig tree that we'll read about here today is in the timeline of that last week of Jesus' life is, is on the Tuesday and the Wednesday of his final week that Passover week in Jerusalem. And and this teaches us much about Jesus' expectations for us and his disciples. Just as this fig tree does not demand from its creator when or if it will produce, I mean, so too we the disciples of Jesus, if we are his disciples, if we are his people, we do not demand of Jesus when he or she will be a disciple. We don't decide when we're going to be a disciple or if we're going to be a disciple. It is the power of the Holy Spirit, the calling of Jesus Christ that transforms us. And we don't dictate to the Lord whether we will or will not. We obey. There's much for us to consider here in this passage about the fig tree. So if if you're able to stand, let's stand and read together. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 18. Now remember, this is in the context of the time where Jesus has cleansed the temple or is cleansing the temple. We'll we'll unpack that a little bit deeper here. Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you. And we praise you for your word. You have given us much to consider in Matthew's gospel. And we thank you for this this even deeper richness of the faith that is expressed here. Jesus' moment of instruction to his disciples and to us concerning this fig tree that produces nothing. 
Lord, many of our prayers are like this fig tree. We do not expect to produce anything. We do not expect that you will answer. And so, God, I pray this morning you would cause your word to prick our souls. Are we confident that you listen? Are we confident that you will answer? Are we confident that you are God? Or do we just mouth words and call it prayer? And so, God, I pray this morning you'll speak to us in your word. Teach us what your son Jesus is teaching his disciples. Therefore, that we have faith that our prayers will be heard. If we have faith and confidence, dear God, you will answer. So help us, Lord, this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a seat. I think the first task in understanding this story of Jesus and his curse upon the fig tree, I think is to compare it to the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptics, but this story of the fig tree is not included in Luke's Gospel, nor is it included in John's. Uh, John's Gospel is unique, remember, in telling us the larger divine nature of who Jesus was. His identity and his divine identity was really the focus of John's Gospel. A little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's why we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptics. They're, they're more in agreement in their structure and in their telling of the story of Jesus. All, but still, all still unique. Um, the, the synoptics tend to me tend to be more chronological in their structure than John's gospel. We talked about this a little bit last week. Yeah, we have to also remember that the ancient method of historical record, the ancient approach to history, did not insist on chronological accuracy. And we can make the error in our modern day and impose our modern standards of history and recording history upon ancient scripture. And when we do that, we are in error. We got to be careful there. Uh, that's where a lot of misinterpretations come into the scriptures because we impose a modern standard of history in chronolo- chronolo- chronological order, chronology. You know what I mean? Things that go in order. We don't, we do that in our modern age. They didn't do it in the ancient times. So just because it's not in the same order in the gospels doesn't mean that somehow it's in error or that there were, that, that the chronology was different. The ancient way of doing history was different. They looked at the theme or the meaning of the event rather than how or exactly the timeline of the event. Why do I say that? Because there are things in the Gospels that some say don't line up and and, dis- and contradict each other because we impose these things upon the Gospels. This is one of these times where Jesus is cursing a fig tree. He's interacting with the fig tree. He, and it's following his cleansing of the temple. If you remember here in verse 17, this is after he cleanses the temple in verse 17 and leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. And then on verse 18, the next morning, they are coming back into Jerusalem and Jesus is hungry and he's looking for something to eat along the way. This was very common because this was during the week of Passover. Jerusalem was full. In order to stay anywhere, you probably had to stay outside of the city walls of Jerusalem if you wanted to lay your head down anywhere. Because there was nowhere, the city was too crowded. It was very common. So these small villages in and around Jerusalem became, well, many Airbnbs. We got some folks who own Airbnbs in this room. Okay. Uh, little mini places where you could go stay with family or friends or people would rent out rooms. It, all around Jerusalem. It was a great economic time of prosperity for those folks. But it was also a time of worship and during the Passover. With that said, I mean, comparing, we got to look at Matthew 21's account and then Mark 11's account. The curse of the fig tree is in both of these places. Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22, and Mark chapter 11. It, Mark's account breaks it up. You have uh, verses 12 through 14, as Jesus comes and he curses the fig tree. And Mark's account says he goes to the temple and, and purges things and does things. And then he, as he's coming back out, Mark 11, 20 through 26 shows that the fig tree is now dried up. So Mark's account shows us a little bit of a different understanding, which I think is probably more accurate. Maybe it was a two-part encounter. Um, but we, what this tells us is that this encounter with the fig tree occurred first on Tuesday morning, and then again on the return trip, possibly on Wednesday of Jesus' Passion Week, perhaps. Those two days in that window. Actually, Mark's account gives us, I think, a more clear picture of the reason 
for this fig tree's demise. Let's read both Matthew 21, 18 through 19. If you want to flip over with your finger, Mark 11, verses 12 through 14. Matthew 21, verse 18 and 19 says this. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, Mark's account is just a little bit different. It gives us one little bit of detail I want to point out here. Beginning in verse 12, Mark 11. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And this is the key in verse 13, for it was not the season for figs. Verse 14, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. I mean, the parallel comparison of these two ver- of these two passages, I think, tells us that Jesus and his disciples returned to the city, clearly after spending the night in the nearby village of Bethany, perhaps lodging with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, often as he did when he was in the area. But I think the first observation in Matthew 21 and Mark 11 is that Jesus was looking for breakfast. There was no grocery stores, folks. No Starbucks, no Mickey D drive-thrus, uh, as many of us do as they come, as we come to church on Sunday mornings. I see it. I mean, I see the Starbucks cups coming in. I see the McDonald's bags being tossed in the trash can. Or if I don't see it, I see it in the trash can when I take it out. Trust me. Y'all, we, we do that. For us, breakfast is convenient. Oftentimes not the healthiest option. And back then there were no Starbucks. There were no Mickey D drive-through. Jesus was hungry. Most people at that time went to a tree or a bush to pick fresh fruit for their breakfast. It was common. Okay? Uh, if one was fortunate and they were at home, there might be fish, there might be dates, or there might even be cheese if you were fortunate. But now we see here in John chapter 21, Jesus cooks fish for breakfast when he was on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias some morning after his resurrection. And this was when he restores Peter to ministry. We read this in John 21, 4 through 12, as Jesus is on the, on the coat, on the shore there. And they, and the disciples come to shore with all their fish. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. He cooked fish that morning. What do we make of Jesus's interaction with the fig tree here? Instead of breaking down, I think, the details of the proper growing season of figs for tree and, and versus the hunger of Jesus's human nature, a lot of commentaries will do that. They want to spend time breaking down the historical timeline of was it the right season for figs? Why was Jesus cursing a fig tree when it wasn't the right time for figs? Or maybe it was the right time for figs, but he just was mad. We're not going to go there. Nor, are, nor do we need to really focus on Jesus's human nature of hunger. I mean, it's obvious he was hungry. Let's instead look at the expectations of Jesus for his disciples as he had an expectation for the fig tree. I think that's the bigger truth here. That's the bigger point here. I think it's what Jesus wants us to see. I think God wants us to see the expectations that Jesus has of his disciples, just as he had an expectation of this fig tree. This is the deeper lesson. I mean, the distinction between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord really is a modern distinction and was never really a separate context in the message of Jesus and the Gospels. Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord means the same thing in the Gospels. Here, Jesus is both Savior and Lord. His authority is made clear over and over again in Matthew's Gospel. And especially in these final chapters, chapters uh, 21 through 28, this final week of his life, his authority will be more open and more clear. Here, there's a high demand of discipleship that is evident here, I think, in this scene. And also in the remaining encounters of Jesus throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel. From this point forward, I think Matthew's really going to drive home the point of Jesus' authority and his authority to demand of his disciples. There's a standard that he's expressing here. He's making a very clear point. Jesus has standards and expectations of us, his people. Now, as I say that, some of you in the room are going, big eyes, deer in the headlight looks. God and his son have expectations of me? Yes, he does. Let's take a look at what's happening here. 
with the exception of Exodus or Deuteronomy. No other book of the, of the Bible is devoted as much as Matthew's gospel is to the teaching of, of morality and, and ethics. How do we, how do we conduct ourselves? How ought we to live as God's people? Matthew's gospel drives this point home. Uh, probably like no other book of the Bible does like Exodus or Deuteronomy. Matthew's there. There is, there's a key theme in Matthew's view of discipleship. As he's writing this, he's telling us that Jesus has a high expectation of his disciples. There's a radical obedience that Jesus expects of his people. He expects us to have genuine obedience. Genuine obedience is righteousness. You want to understand what righteousness is? It's genuine obedience. Jesus expects this. There's also genuine obedience to loving one another and loving him. There's an expectation. There is no, there's no middle ground or gray area. We are to be obedient and righteous. We are to be obedient in loving. Disciples are those whose lives radically conform to the teachings of Jesus, yet this radical conformity does not mean perfection. Jesus in no way expects perfection, even though there is that verse that says, uh, be perfect as our heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. But at the same time, in that idea, he understands we're fallen sinners too. Jesus never expects absolute divine perfection as God the Father himself is without sin, because he understands we have sin. He does expect loyal obedience. In other words, perfection in the obedience and loyalty to him and his word. But the 12 disciples failed often, didn't they? Yet he still loved them, and he still called them disciples. That's the key. The love of Christ still loves us, and he still sees us as his disciples even though we fail often. So perfection is not necessarily, doesn't mean without failing. <laughs> because every time the disciples failed, they were, they were chastised. And from that, they learned more obedience as disciples. That's the key. I mean, the pattern of Jesus has formed the discipleships that we see in Matthew's gospel, particularly in chapters 14 and 15, when, when all, all failure of his 12 is met by Jesus' stern rebuke. Right? This meek and mild Jesus was very, he had the authority and the right because he loved his disciples so much to rebuke them. Jesus' rebuke then gives way to instruction. And this instruction restores the repentant disciple. That's the pattern. The essence of discipleship for Matthew's gospel is to form a new people of God that conforms to the entirety of, of the demands of morality of Jesus for the new kingdom. I mean, here's, here's two big words. That I, I, a lot of people like to take notes, and I like to give you words from time to time but to cause you to think. There's two words here I want you to think about. Orthopraxis and orthodoxy. You ever heard those two? You, many people have heard orthodoxy, but many have not ever heard of orthopraxis. Orthopraxis is the idea of correct conduct. In other words, the right practice of the doctrine of Christ. Orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is correct understanding, the right opinion, true doctrine. So orthodoxy, we have to have correct orthodoxy, correct doctrine, tr correct understanding, the right opinion of what God says in order to conduct ourselves rightly to practice what God tells us to practice. The two go in the hand. Now, call... Next, uh, disciples of Jesus, God, uh, Jesus expects his disciples to respond when he calls them. A disciple is one who has been called by Jesus. Contrast this with, we got to think about the ancient practice of a disciple. In the ancient world, uh, the great teacher, the great philosopher would not go and call students. The students would seek out this teacher or this rabbi and volunteer to be the student. Jesus does something much differently, doesn't he? He goes and he finds his disciples and he calls them. A radically different contrast here. Why am I going through all this? Because this is how we have to understand what Jesus is expecting of his people. Jesus does not expect his disciples to come seek him out and 
volunteer to be his disciples. No, Jesus goes and he gets them. Big difference. Lastly, all of Jesus' disciples are expected to not be superficial. Here's the issue, and this is what we see a lot in Matthew's Gospel. The Gospels often show Jesus and His harsh reaction about superficiality. Another term here would be nominal Christianity. You know what that idea is? A Christian in name only. You call on the name of Jesus, you want to be His disciple, but then you don't look like it, act like it, or truly believe it. The, I mean, we see this in Matthew chapter 8, chapter 19, even here in the curse of the fig tree. I think that's part of what Jesus is trying to get us to see. There is no room for any disciple in the kingdom of heaven who is superficial, who does not obey, who does not desire Christ. Jesus expected much from his followers, and he still does, folks. And I think that's what we're going to see here in this weather, the tree here. The called by Jesus, we all share certain unquestioned characteristics. To be a genuine follower of Jesus, to be called by Jesus, there is an expectation of an intentional exercise of faith either in the person or in the ability. I mean, in other words, the faith in Jesus, the man, or faith in his ability and his expression of power and authority. Do we honestly have that intentional faith and intentional grasping and, and gripping of Jesus as Lord, as our Savior? Do we see him that way? Do we see him as the miracle worker, the one who redeems us? Do we intentionally exercise that grasping of faith and trust? Next, do a, a called by Jesus seeks and receives forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness is given to the sinner who is seeking and, and intentionally exercises the faith and the trust that, yes, this Jesus is able and will forgive me. There are the privileged we are all privileged to receive the revelations of Jesus about the initiation or the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. Those who are called by Jesus, we are the privileged ones because Jesus has given us the understanding and the, and the sign and the seeing of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. We saw that in Matthew 17. And those called by Jesus are then commissioned to evangelism, to service to the poor, to the teaching of the gospel. All of these things. So we are intentional in exercising our faith. Uh, we, we do receive and, and the forgiveness of sins and we desire it. We seek it out. We actually see the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. That's a gift to us. And then we are called, we are commissioned to evangelism, service to the poor, and to teach the gospel. Because Jesus and his disciples, disciples of our Lord, are marked by a radical commitment to Jesus' commands. He demands this of us. Jesus often calls his disciples away from a pattern of life to a totally new pattern and a new sphere of obedience. We are to be totally different than who we were. Now, we can't manufacture this, but Jesus expects it, doesn't he? That's what, we're going to, that's what we see here in the tree. Jesus had an expectation of this tree and the tree did not match his commands, his expectation, and the tree received the curse. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples here. For Matthew's gospel, there's no higher priority in life. Matthew points this out in Jesus's ministry. Remember, all the gospels tell the same story of Jesus and his ministry, but they all look at it from different perspectives, and all the perspectives are equal and valid. And one of the main perspectives of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven is coming and there is an expectation in the kingdom. And if you are a citizen of the kingdom, here's what our Lord expects. He expects obedience to our Lord. There's a priority of obedience. There's a priority of commitment to his righteousness. There's a priority to his commitment to the kingdom of God. There is no gray area. And I think that's what Jesus is showing here about this tree. There is no gray area, fig tree. <laughs> you're either producing fruit or you're not. There is no middle ground. I think we see these high expectations from Jesus here in this fig tree. 
Not, not that Jesus expected this fig tree to sprout legs and walk as a follower of his. Because, I mean, this was an inanimate object. This tree did not have a soul. I just want to bring that point home. This fig tree did not have a soul. So the standards on this fig tree wouldn't, I mean, we are expected to have a higher standard because we have a will. We have a soul. This tree did not, despite what our pagan friends think that all trees are filled with some kind of spirit. No. But Jesus does have an expectation on this tree, doesn't he? Jesus teaches here through this fig tree in this encounter a clear lesson for his disciples who were here and for us. I mean, it could be argued that this curse of the fig tree really was a parable, a practical parable intended to teach an important lesson about intentionality in the kingdom, but more importantly, the intention of prayer and our Lord's authority to recognize the outcomes of the heart, even though we're blind to what may be in our heart. Look here at verse 19. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And we saw this in, in, in Matthew 11, verse uh, four, actually verse 13. When he saw nothing but leaves on the tree, Matthew's go- or Mark's gospel tells us, for it was not the season for figs. Wasn't time for the figs yet. Too early. So you might ask the question, well, was Jesus fair in cursing the fig tree when it wasn't quite time for the fruit to come? Let that sink in for a minute. Was Jesus being unfair to this poor tree, even though Mark's gospel tells us it was not yet the season for figs? Why would Jesus curse a fig tree before the season of figs to come? Because Jesus knows the intentionality and the production of the tree. Did Jesus make the tree? Does he know whether the tree will produce fruit or not? Even though there's no sign of fruit on the tree, does he know in the future, in the season to come, will there be figs on this tree? He would know. Now, you and I may doubt and question and think, wait a minute. Jesus is not fair here. There was no sign of figs on the tree because it wasn't the right season. How can Jesus curse the fig tree when it wasn't time for the fig tree to have fruit? Jesus is Lord. Jesus has all authority. Jesus can see the true heart, the true intentionality of us. He can see the true intentionality of this tree that he created. He knows whether the tree will produce fruit in the future or not. And therefore, he looks at the tree and says, cursed, you will never, ever produce anything ever again. Now, again, let me remind you, this tree has no soul. Yet Jesus still condemns it. How much more will he hold us accountable, you and I, who are created just like this fig tree, but we are created in the image of God and we have a will, we have a soul, we have heart, we have future intentions. Jesus knows that long before it comes to be. You see the point here? The time for figs was not in season at this time of the year. It was not the season for figs. Yet Jesus still curses this tree. A sinful, selfish person would react in anger toward a fig tree that did not have figs exactly when this selfish person demanded figs. How many of us get mad because the grocery stores don't have eggs? I've heard that a lot in the last month. There's no more eggs. There's no more milk. There's no more bread. There's no more my favorite cereal. Whatever you name, whatever you're used to getting at the grocery store. Why are you angry? It's because you don't get what you want when you want it. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is Jesus sinning here because he's angry because he didn't get what he wanted? Absolutely not. Jesus is sinless. Now, you and I would look at a fig tree and get mad because it didn't have what we wanted. That's not Jesus's anger here. His anger is not selfish. His anger is not that that way. His anger is the, the righteous authority of the Creator to look at this fig tree and see what it will or will not do. All the more so, can Jesus' wrath with His disciples be the same? <laughs> look here in verses 20 through 22. 
when the, when Jesus cursed the fig tree in verse 19, then in verse 20, when the disciples saw it, when they saw that Jesus had cursed it and the fig tree withered, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what this has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, this is Jesus' response to the disciples and their question about this fig tree. He did not answer about the natural aspect of the tree's growing season. Instead, Jesus answers the question about a fig tree with the declaration about confident faith. Verse 21, truly, I... uh, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. The point of verse 21 is Jesus is looking at them and saying, your faith is not confident faith. And without confidence, there is no faith. That's the definition of faith. Confidence. That God is right. That God is true. That His Son, Jesus Christ, is who he is. And Jesus Christ will save us. He will redeem us. He will save, he will, he will forgive us. Confidence that salvation will happen is the key here. Now, this is not saying that we have some magical, mystical power. But Jesus does say in verse 21, I truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, he says it. The point about the fig tree is not that Jesus did not get what he wanted, nor is it that Jesus' wrath against the fig tree because the tree did not obey. The point of Jesus' answer is a teaching moment to his disciples. He cursed the fig tree as a teaching moment to his disciples. His expectations of them in intentional prayer and intentional faith. I think that's the lesson here. It's not that somehow Jesus is declaring to us that we now have the power to declare to all creation to do what we will. Is, is that what our name it and claim it prosperity gospel charismatic folks try to teach us? If the emphasis of the scriptures is us, then that's what you'll come out with. But the emphasis of the scripture is not us, folks. What's the point of all scripture? Points to Christ. And so this is about Jesus Christ. If if I truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, the two concepts go hand in hand. And do not doubt. The point about the fig tree is this. This is a teaching moment that Jesus has for his disciples. And you and I who are Christians, we are all his disciples. He has expectations. His expectation for us is intentional prayer. And intentional fellowship. Because remember, this is in the context of cleansing the temple. And he called the temple, it is written, my house shall be called what? A house of prayer. This scene is tied into that. Jesus knows the heart of one's prayer. If one truly does not believe that the prayer will be answered, why should God bother answering the prayer? You see the point? If one truly does not believe that the prayer will be heard, why should God listen? This scene with the fig tree is in correlation with the purging of the temple, remember? And and so when Jesus said this about the house of prayer, the Gospels often show us this truth. Think about this. Jesus here, what does he do? He presented the ultimate end of this fig tree as a sign of what awaits hypocrites and to expose the emptiness and folly of vain worship. If this scene with the fig tree, this cursing of the fig tree, is an extension of the scene of the cursing of the temple and the purging of the temple, that's what we got to see. Jesus is using this as a teaching example, a parable, to expose the emptiness and the folly of vain worship. The chief priests of the temple had led the nation of Israel into vain worship. Their prayers were vain. Their prayers were empty. They lacked faith. They lacked genuine expectations of God's answer, much less expectations of God's presence. Therefore, their end would be like this fig tree. Now, now some might argue that Jesus cursed the fig tree before the fig tree had time to prove its value. 
But remember that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows the end before it comes. The intent of this tree was never to produce fruit in its season, although it was too early to see the buds that would give you evidence that it would. What is Jesus teaching us here? What's he teaching the disciples here? I mean, just as Jesus knew and declared the future end of the Jewish sacrificial system, right? That's what he did there in the temple. When he purged the temple of all of the corrupt forms of sacrifice, remember, all sacrifice, the sacrificial system ceased. Just as Jesus knew this, he knew the end of the Jewish sacrificial system. He's looking to this fig tree and declaring over the Jewish people, over the nation of Israel, and also over his disciples, you must have intentional expectations of me, just as I have intentional expectations of you. The fig tree symbolized the blessing and prosperity over the children of Israel. If you had a fig tree, if you sat underneath a fig tree, that was a sign of God's blessing because you were prosperous and you were had all you needed. It, it was a symbol. The fig tree symbolized prosperity and blessing for Israel. It was Matter of fact, if you, you would have sat under a fig tree as a gathering place for God's blessing. Jesus has full knowledge of the result of this fig tree, and he has full knowledge of the result of our faith and our acts of worship. He has full knowledge of our prayers. We can't fake it. He knows whether our prayers for salvation are genuine and will produce faithful repentance. When someone comes to me and says, Pastor, why? Is God not saving me? I pray and I pray and I pray and I pray. He's not listening. He's not listening. He's not listening. You know why? It's because your prayers are not intentional and your prayers are not genuine. You don't expect to be saved. It's bottom line. When someone comes to me and says, well, I'm praying and praying and praying. Why is God not saving me? I want salvation. I want him to forgive me. Do you really? Do you really? Jesus knows the intent of the heart. He knows the intent of the prayer. You can say the words, but not mean it. And he knows it. Just like he looks at this fig tree. Even, even though others may look at it and say, well, it's not time for figs yet. Jesus looks at that fig tree and he says, I know what it will produce. Nothing. And as he's looking at the temple and the worship in the temple that had become corrupt, he knew that it would produce nothing. And he purges it. That's what he does to the fig tree. He curses it. He knows whether our prayers for God's provision for our daily needs, do we truly believe that he will provide? We can pray and pray and pray, but if in our heart and in our soul we don't truly mean it, we don't truly believe that he's hearing us, we don't truly believe that he will provide, why should he? God wants us to truly and intentionally expect something from him. Now, I say those words and you say, Pastor, you're turning into a charismatic preacher. No. If you want salvation, if you want your sins forgiven, God knows whether you really want it or not. He knows if our prayers for worship matter or not. Remember, we looked at this last week, and actually the last couple of weeks in Isaiah 56. God accepts pure acts of worship from those who offer prayers Praying is the most genuine form of worship that God loves. And He knows whether it's real or not. He knows whether our prayers honestly, truly trust that He will answer, much less listen. Can we haphazardly declare a mountain to jump into the sea as Jesus says here? I mean, that... That's why that's been taken. This is, the, this is one interpretation. If your interpretation is Jesus is telling us what we can do and give us power, then that's what you'll take away. I mean, think it's, it's, it's ludicrous to think that we could look at a mountain and say, go jump into a sea. It's ludicrous. But what's the point here? It's not what Jesus means here in verse 21. The illustration of moving mountains was an opportunity to teach in the moment. Jesus and his disciples stood in the place that overlooked the mountains near Jerusalem. And he just points to give an illustration. Despite how many interpret this verse, verse 21, Jesus is not giving us the power to command anything in God's natural order. I was at a funeral once. 
And a young man who knew this young lady who had died came into the funeral and walked up to the casket and demanded that she get up out of the casket to be sorely disappointed. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look at the heart of your prayers. Look at the intent of how you worship me. Look at how you communicate, how you petition me. Prayer is supplication, petition to the Father. Do you truly, truly have a heart to produce something from this prayer? Do you truly, truly expect God to hear you and answer you? Just like, do you intend to plant a seed in your garden and expect something to come out at the end of the season? That's what he's saying here. Here's the thing. The most important rule here is this. If prosperity and wealth is the point of this verse in 21, that Jesus, think about this, if Jesus is really teaching us that you have the power to command whatever you want and the power to gain whatever you want, then Jesus has a funny way of offering prosperity when he curses the fig tree. The fig tree was a symbol of prosperity and blessing, remember? Why would he curse the fig tree if what he intended in verse 21 was to give you power for prosperity and wealth? Ponder that for a minute. See, people don't think that deeply about it, do they? That's not what he meant. The withered fig tree is a symbol of judgment. It's not that Jesus is giving us power to command anything. The most important rule of prayer is that despite our failures, despite our humility, we should actively pray, but we actively pray with the sure hope of succeeding. And it begins with the prayer of salvation. It begins with the prayer of, dear Lord, save me, forgive me, make me new. That's where it begins. And that's really kind of where it ends. (laughs) Use me, Father, for your kingdom. And if we don't intentionally expect to be used in the kingdom, why should God listen to the prayer? If we truly intend to see a loved one saved and come to salvation and we ask the Lord to save them, to redeem them, to purify them, to, to change their heart, If we don't truly intend it, why should should God listen? Now, God in the end will do what God will do. God will save or God will not save. He will save life. He will end life. It is all His to do. But our unworthiness, whether we consciously or subconsciously understand our unworthiness, our unworthiness really divests us of all faith and confidence. This is one of the problems here. We've got to think about this. We are unworthy of God's presence. We are unworthy of His grace. We are unworthy of His salvation. And honestly, that can consume us and, and, and purge us of all faith and all confidence because we know we're unworthy. We remain in a constant state of fear that destroys our confidence, our faith in the one we hold dear. That's a warning here, I think. If we're struggling in prayer with our Lord, is it because we understand how unworthy we are and somehow we say to ourselves consciously or subconsciously, He'll never hear me anyway? This confidence is not that 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 frees the mind from all anxiety and soothes it with perfect rest. Jesus demands from his disciples, and he and he even demands from the children of Israel that doubting that God is ready to stretch out His merciful hand is not expecting any of His goodness, but He does anyway. That's what we hold faithful. That's what we hold dear. Are we confident that even though we do not deserve God's mercy, even though we do not deserve His hand, He does it anyway? Are we confident that He will? I mean, this common theme of unwavering faith here is even found in the other parts of all throughout Scripture, but we looked at this earlier last summer in James chapter 1, remember on Wednesday nights, James chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Jesus, in cursing this fig tree, is teaching his disciples what he was teaching in in the temple. Your acts of worship and your prayer are like waves of the sea. You're double-minded. And I will have nothing of it. 
Now let's look here at Matthew 21, verse 22, and we'll close with this. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. But here's the clarifier. If you have faith. I mean, that's the key here. It's not that you will receive what you want. You will receive God's will. Let me say that again. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. It's not if you ask in prayer for what you want. It's what you ask in prayer for God's will. God's will is not ours. Note the important condition in the answer to prayer. If you have faith, that's the key. We do not have faith in ourselves for the prayer to be answered. We have faith that God will because God's will is not our will and God's will is perfect. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is leading us and teaching us in this. If you have faith, faith is not faith in yourself. Faith is faith in Christ. If you have faith in Christ that He will answer this prayer as His will is glorified, then it will be answered. So those who distort verse 22, they're distorting it because they're turning everything around on them. Instead, the focus should be on Jesus Himself. If you have faith in the Savior, if you have faith in the Son of God, if you have faith that Jesus is who He is and He will do what He will do, and if your prayer is in His faith or in His will, if you have faith in His will, it will be done in you. See the point? I mean, we may say that we have faith. We may think that we have faith, but what Jesus, I think, is teaching us here in this withered tree incident, as He curses the fig tree, He's teaching us that He alone knows the genuine confidence of one's faith. He knows the genuine confidence and the true intent of this fig tree to produce, even before it produces. So do not lie to yourself as you lie to God and you say, Dear God, forgive me for whatever. Do not lie to yourself as you lie to God when you say, Dear God, I am, I'm, I'm repentant. I'm sorry for my sins. If you're not truly repentant and not truly sorry, Jesus knows it and there will be no salvation. There will be no fruit from the prayer. Without confidence that the prayer is in the will of God, it's not. Without confidence that God will hear the prayer, he won't. Faith and confidence are intertwined. Faith requires confidence. Confidence requires faith. And if that confidence that your prayer is in the will of God, it will never be in the will of God. Our prayers must be in alignment with God's will, not our own. Jesus tells all of his disciples and even us that he knows the will of our prayers. And here's the big word. He knows the will of the supplicant. You know what a supplicant is? A supplicant is someone who comes to God and, and, and petitions and pray, prays. And honestly, to the point of perhaps begging, asking for a favor, asking for the or for God's favor. It, it, Jesus tells us that he knows our will in the prayer. He knows the future of the outcome of that prayer. Is it genuine? Is it not? Is it a genuine form of worship? Is it not? Just as the religious elite of Israel, they, they, they feigned, they acted out prayer. It was a ludicrous result. They were really slapping the face of God. Are we doing the same? Are your prayers confident? That God will show His grace? Are your prayers confident that His will is good, that His will is true? And you have faith and confidence that whatever you ask in His will, He will do and it will be right and it will be good despite the fact that we may not like it. Or in our salvation prayer, we will love it. <laughs> Wouldn't you love for the Lord to forgive you of your sins? Do you genuinely want that? Do you genuinely intend? Do you really believe that God will? Do you genuinely intend that God will forgive you of your sins? If you don't, that prayer is useless. I would hate to think that we would turn out like the fig tree and be cursed and wither and die. I would hate to think that our worship turns out like this fig tree and it turns out to be cursed and withered 
and die. Do we truly intend for God's will to be God's will? That's what he's looking for. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, I thank you for this truth of the withered fig tree, that Jesus interacting with his fig tree. Yeah, he was hungry and he, he did curse it, but it was not out of, out of revenge. It was out of a sign and a teaching moment. It was to teach us the truth of his kingdom and the truth of our will and your will in harmony and in alignment. Do we truly trust and are we confident that your will is perfect? Lord, you know that even before we know it. And so, God, I do pray that you would have mercy on us all. That you would give us not only awareness, but faith. That we do trust you. Help us to see where we do not trust you. Help us to see where we are just mouthing the words or we're lying to ourselves when we truly don't believe that your will is good. Lord, your kingdom is so valuable. It's eternally rich. And we are honored to be called into it. And so, Lord, give us the strength and the ability to meet your expectations, even though we'll fail every single time. Help us, Lord, to meet your expectations of confident faith. May we never discredit your name. May we never embarrass you. Teach us to love you. Teach us to hold tight to you. And Lord, I pray as we close here that you would use this time for your glory. That you would stir within the hearts of any who are here. That you need to stir. That you need to reveal something to. Lord, use this moment for your glory and your kingdom. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.